ever seen. Back to the camera. Back to the camera. Glad to be here. It's a little chilly in here. Maybe it's me. What y'all, a little chilly? It's a little chilly in here. Could just be me, but we'll take it. Well, today we are going to conclude uh, what's love got to do with it series. We've been in this series since the beginning of September. So we've been September, October, and obviously this is November. So this is the last of this particular series, and I'm grateful to have done it. I've learned a lot in this series about love, at least biblically speaking. And we're looking forward to, to moving on <clears throat> as a church and getting into some other things. But I want to do just real quick, I want to make sure we just recap a few things as we're, as we're rounding up the end of this series. I just want to say a couple of things just by way of reminder that this series has shown us along the way. So in the process from the beginning of this series where we were talking about uh, John 13 is kind of where we started, where Jesus was telling his disciples that he has a new command to give them. And the command was to love one another. Now, this command was given to men who were married. At least Paul in 2 Corinthians 11 highlights, he says something like, am I not allowed to take a wife like the other apostles? So he gives some semblance of reality that the other apostles were married. So these men were people who had wives and maybe children and knew what love was. But when Jesus called them to a new love, it was a new command. It wasn't a love that they were familiar with because the love was said to love as he does. We understood that to be a love that's, that's supernatural, it's not a love that everyone can do because not everyone is a follower of Jesus and not everyone wants to be like Jesus and to love like Jesus does. In this series, we also looked at the fact that a, that a failure to love one another means that we don't love God. Like these are the words of God himself. He takes the call to love fellow believers significantly enough that if there is a, a failure to love other people, then from God's perspective, then you're not one of his people. So that's not even an option. It's not one of those things where, you know, as, as has been said, you can have some bad doctrine and get to heaven, but you can't be unloving. There is something unique from God's perspective that when he places his spirit inside of a person, the genuineness of that Holy Spirit will connect with others who are of the same spirit. And even though you might not have the historical narrative with them, you might not have the emotional uh, uh, experience with them, but there is a sense of, hey, this is a believer. And I'm excited. It's, it's kind of like when I hear of a professional athlete that's a believer. I hope that they win the championship. Even if they're not my favorite player or not my team, I love knowing that someone who is a believer, who believes in the same Jesus, whom God's word says they are suffering the same kinds of sufferings. 
I know that if you say you are a believer and it's genuinely true of you, then you are reading the same Bible, praying to the same God, resisting sin, fighting and persevering to the end, fighting to have joy and count it joy in the midst of trials that you are experiencing solely because you want to honor the Lord. So there is a love that I can have for a person and I don't even know them. My love for them is connected to the fact that they love God and are loved by God. And we see from God's word in 1 John 4 that a failure to love one another means that we don't love God. We also see from that passage in others that the motive for loving others is not dependent upon how I feel about them, but how God feels about me. This has been a paradigm shift for me and some others. I know in my D group we talked about this. This is it's been a different way to think because I've always measured love by my emotional capacity and how much relationship I have with a person. And I'm, and I'm motivated by my love for people, my emotional connection to people, or my perception of their love for me. But if I feel like they don't like me, well, in, his, in the flesh, I don't like them. If I'm not motivated by emotion, if I don't have the experience with people, then I can't love them the way I can somebody that I put some time in with. But the biblical model is not how much time I've invested in you. It's how much God has invested in me. So I don't have to have an emotional capacity towards you. I don't have to have a warm disposition towards you. I don't even have, you don't even have to like me, but to be loving towards you, I'm motivated by God's love for me. That's a game changer. Because often, let's just be honest, even the people that we're close to, there are moments where it's difficult to love. If anyone is listening to this message or any of these sermons, and you're thinking of people who are difficult to love, and you're like, yep, yeah, I, I would recommend you grab a small vanity mirror and just put that joint right on up and look and say, this person is difficult to love too. And yet, I'm motivated, not by how you treat me, but what God's done for me. We learned that one of the questions that we ask to process is, what is the action of love that is required in this moment? What does it look like? For me, I'll, I'll scan 1 Corinthians 13, and I'll think, all right, what, what are the, what, love is patience, love is kind, okay, okay, what is it, okay, patience, kindness, love is not rude, sometimes it's what, what not, love is sometimes what it's not, okay, let me not be rude, let me not insist on my own way, yeah. let me believe the best about this person, especially when it's a brother, sister. What is the action of love that's required? And the key word is action, not emotion. We don't have the emotional capacity to sustain a feeling of love very long. We just don't have that. So there's actions of love that we're required to do. 
So what is the action of love that is required in this moment? And I ask myself this question consistently. Just over the year, this year since we've been doing this, different interactions with people, different situations. And I ask it largely because I'm not always in a loving mood. I'm not looking around like, hey, just love everyone. Who can I love? So I ask myself this when I'm going through a drive-thru. I ask myself this when I'm in a situation. I'm going to pick up the groceries and the guy is going to put them in. And I think, okay, what's that? What does it look like? Well, let me just at least smile. You know, if you don't, I don't know. I know I look gangster when I don't smile, but everybody does. If you don't smile and you just be like this, everyone looks mean. No one looks approachable. So it ain't just dudes like me. I've seen little people that look like, man, you kids. That's why kids are always in horror films. They can be the scariest ones. So love is a disposition and an action. We also learn that there are hindrances to love, and one of them was not recognizing sin and temptation. Sometimes we give in to temptation because we think we've sinned, and so we looked at, okay, the consider. That's what sin, there's nothing we can do about what is considered. We're going to be asked to consider sinning against the Lord. That's going to happen. We can't fight that, but justify we can. Now we start making excuses. Well, they, they talk to me like this. They don't ask me for forgiveness, or they you know, fill in the blank, start to justify it. And then you agree, yeah, I mean, I ain't, you know, I'm not letting them walk all over me. So, And then you, ah, you say something, or you withdraw, or you, whatever that is. We watch this play out and realize, hey, let's not be fooled here. There are times where we think we're not loving because we're tempted to not love a person. We may even feel distant or angry or bitter. We may have been working through resentment towards a person. So we think we can't be loving because I don't feel that way. Well, there's still actions that can happen. I can still be kind even though I don't feel like it. I can still be gentle even though I don't feel like it. We learn that Jesus is the word, and that when we're reading the word, we're reading the Bible, we're reading Jesus. Jesus resists temptation using himself, the word of God. John 1 1 says, Jesus in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So the Mosaic law that Jesus used to resist Satan in the wilderness was his own word, himself. So we want to we wanna read the Bible, we want to commune with Jesus, because when we read his word, even though it's black and red letters sometimes to us, it's actually himself. It's one of the ways that we interact with him. We've heard and from Mike and myself that to love faithfully, we have to have a plan. If you fail to plan, you plan to fail. And the plan is to take our thoughts captive. So this has been the the progression of what we've learned in loving. And we'll conclude this morning with a few verses from Ephesians 4 that just sort of encapsulate all of what we've been hearing. 
in some way, shape, or form. And I'm reading now. Your word should be on your screen so you'll have the same translation as me. If you don't, I know some of y'all got that King James. I'm not reading no thath, hath, doth, and thus. I'm reading from the CSB. It says this in Ephesians 4, verse 1 through 6. Therefore, I, the prisoner in the Lord, urge you to live worthy of the calling you have received with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There was one body and one Spirit, just as you were called, to one hope at your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And this morning, I pray as we conclude our series on what's love got to do with it, that we would conclude with a sense of, just a, just a reminder, a, a sense of, okay, we've heard some of this, we recognize some of this, and the repetition is, is, to, is to deepen our memory, our commitment. The, what we hear today is to deepen our responsibility, for we've heard that you, when we hear the gospel, it's good news, but once we believe it, it's a responsibility to a good God. It's no longer just good news once we believe it. It becomes our responsibility to obey it and to live it out. And so this morning, Lord, is no different as we press into this particular passage in this particular moment, hoping that it will carry us through, continue to carry us through, along with your grace, until we stand before you face to face. If that's tomorrow or 50 years from now, it will happen. And I pray that we will be ready. Thank you for your word. And may we use it mightily today for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Verse 1, Paul says, therefore I, we understand that. I've said this before, but when he talks about therefore, Paul is always referring to, it's essentially saying, in light of everything I just said, I, so when he says therefore, He's looking back to chapter 3 and highlighting some great news, which we'll, we'll see that shortly in a moment. It'll, it will connect with that. But he's just stating that in, in light of what I've just said, I, and he defines himself as a prisoner in the Lord. A prisoner in the Lord. That's a beautiful phrase, in the Lord. So this is, this is not just a prisoner for the Lord. Like, I'm not just locked up on his behalf. I'm not locked up just because I believe in Jesus, but I'm a prisoner in the Lord. I'm locked into who Jesus is. I am a part of who Jesus is. I am connected with who Jesus is. I'm a prisoner in the Lord, not just for the Lord. I'm in the Lord, and that's part of the functional identity. It's I'm, a, I'm, I'm, I'm a prisoner in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says this, I urge you to live worthy of the calling you have received. So this idea of live, sometimes in other translations, it might say walk in a manner worthy. But that language, live, walk, it's just, it's just saying, listen, you need to behave in a specified manner. 
You need to behave a certain way because you're a believer. So you live or you walk in a man. Those, those words are all just sort of analogies that say, listen, behave a certain way because you believe a certain thing. So we behave a certain way because we believe a certain thing. And you know what? Everyone does that. Just about every person behaves according to what they believe. Everyone. Christian, non-Christian. I behave according to what I believe. So God isn't even saying this as something unique to us. It's reminding us that, okay, you believe a certain thing, then behave a certain way. And then he says, to live worthy of the calling you have received. We just sang two songs, but particularly the last song, worthy. Now, what's interesting about this particular phrase is that we tend to think of worthiness like we sang the song. You're worthy. Worthy of every song we could ever sing. Worthy of every breath we could ever take. Worthy, we live for you, right? There's a sense of we know that Jesus is worthy, and we know that we're not worthy. But what this passage is saying here is something slightly different. You see, Paul isn't appealing to us. God isn't speaking to us from the standpoint of our subjective unworthiness. That's not what he's saying here. He says, live worthy of the calling you have received. So worthiness was given to us by God saving us. Worthy is about having value. It's about having value. So it's basically saying, look, live worthy, live with value. Why? Because God values you. God values you worthy. This is important. This is important. Now, maybe you don't think this way, but functionally all the time, but often we will are aware of our sinfulness, right? We're usually more aware of our sinfulness than our holiness. We're usually more aware of our unworthiness than our worthiness. In fact, many of us don't tend to think of ourselves as worthy, but only Jesus as worthy. And in the grand scheme of, you know, biblical reality, then yeah, okay, maybe so. But in the passage and what God is commanding and wanting us to live in light of is the opposite of that. God isn't saying we're unworthy. He's saying, I have made you worthy. You're worthy to me, so I want you to live with that value. I value you. I've sent my son to die for you, so I see you as valuable. Now live with the values that I have given you. There is no sense from God that we are unworthy. We go to passages like, you know, all our works are a filthy rag in the Old Testament and all. And those are all true statements. But in Jesus Christ, God says, I see people differently. You are worthy. So what actually makes us unworthy, biblically speaking, is not the sinfulness that we commit necessarily. What makes us unworthy is the unwillingness to accept that he sees us as worthy. That's different. God never says that our ongoing battle with sin is what makes us unworthy. 
He says, live in a manner or walk in a manner worthy of the calling that you have received because God deems us as worthy. So the reality is sometimes a part of what it means to have faith in the Lord is not just that he, when we die, we're going to go to heaven, but also while we live, we live heavenly, right? So we live according to how he says. We live with a new identity even though we don't feel it. And the identity is that God says we're worthy. So to be unworthy is to disagree with the biblical notion that God says you and I are worthy in Jesus Christ. That is the only unworthiness for the believer. This is important because many of us don't listen. Would they, would they say you are what you eat? I forgot, me, me and Mike, we said this from the King James, so a man thinketh he is, right? We, we like that King James for this. Sometimes that King James be right on. It says it a little differently in the CSB. I don't like the way it says it in the CSB. But in the King James, it says, so a man thinketh he is. So what do you think of yourself? Do you think because you sinned yesterday or this morning or you're sinning right now, do you think that by default that makes you unworthy in God's sight? Even though God knew you were going to sin and I were going to sin and still chose us before the foundation of the world, do you think that makes you unworthy? It may make us unwise. It may, it's not a good look, but Jesus Christ is so worthy to the Father that all who believe in him, whom God has given him, God says all of those millions of billions of people are worthy like him because his worthiness is so complete that it's able to cover all the unworthiness of all these people, so much so that I can command you to live worthy of the calling that you have received because from my eyes, you are worthy because I've given you value. Don't deny the value that God has given you and live unworthy lives or consider yourself unworthy because you failed. Newsflash, all of us fail except for Jesus. To live worthy means we accept it and we believe by our obedience that we are worthy because he defines us that way. Not because I feel that way. I've never felt, I don't know about you, Mike, I've never woken up and felt worthy to be a pastor. Worthy to be, there are times I'll pray and be like, I, I start off some of my prayers like, Lord, I don't even deserve to pray to you. But I don't stay there. Because God already knows that. And I'm not trying to convince myself of something that he says is not true of me right now in Jesus Christ. What makes us worthy, like Paul, is that we're a prisoner in the Lord. Our worthiness isn't in my ability to obey God. It's in Jesus Christ who obey God fully. And my worthiness comes from a desire to obey God because he's given me his spirit to do so. And that worthiness largely will hinge on how I love, loving. The next little phrase he says, he talks about a calling. He says this, worthy of the calling you have received. Here's why we're worthy, because a calling is essentially means you've been summoned by God. A calling. It's like, hello, who's this? Alexander Graham Bell wasn't alive then. It's, it's a calling that you're summoned by God. We have received, we've been given. 
Not something that we found or pursued, but it's something that's given, it's passive. It was given to us, that's Ephesians 2. For the grace is a gift of God so that no one can boast. It's passive, this, this calling. But once we receive it, it becomes active. It becomes active. We've been summoned to, by God to serve Christ. And because he was worthy, we live under his worthiness. And so God can speak to people who are literally unworthy and say, nope, not anymore. He talks about what we receive to live worthy of the calling that we have received. So what did we receive? What did you and I receive? There'd be many answers to this question, but I'll just say two things. Salvation and cohabitation. Salvation and cohabitation. Salvation is what we received. The forgiveness of sin that God is not going to put us into eternal punishment for our sin. Let me make sure that you understand this. It doesn't mean there won't be discipline in this life for sin. doesn't mean there won't be some challenges because of our sinfulness and God disciplines those he loves his sons and that's going to happen. That's different than you're going to spend eternal punishment for your sin. Salvation in its essence is that when Jesus died on the cross, he, he was receiving hell the punishment of hell, the wrath of God for every person who would believe in him. It was effective for the whole world, but it's only efficient for those who are going to believe in him. Forgiveness of sin is part of the salvation that we receive. But then it's also freedom from sin. See, salvation isn't just, hey, your sins are forgiven, keep doing them. That's why Romans 6 was like, oh, no, 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 no. Don't let your sin have authority. Don't let it reign over you. Remember Romans 6, like five, six years ago? Don't let sin reign over you. You now have authority over your sin. That's part of the gift of salvation. With freedom from the punishment of sin and freedom from the power of sin. But he never said it would be freedom from the presence of sin. Freedom from the punishment, freedom from the power, but not freedom from the presence of sin. The second thing we get, we don't just get forgiveness from God, but we get an actual relationship with him. God could have just said your sins are forgiven, you're good. But he said, no, nah, I want to actually have a relationship with you. How so? I'm going to give my spirit and place it in you. And it's going to cohabitate in you so that you will not be able to sin in ways that you used to sin in and feel comfortable doing it. Not for long. God says, I'm going to give you my spirit. And so his spirit is in us. That's part of the motivation for why we love, because it reminds us. It's part of the motivation for why we live how we live. It reminds us. It reminds us, hey, we want to honor the Lord. So cohabitation is the spirit in us and then the church with us. 
He didn't make us individuals, a bunch of Lone Ranger Christians. He says, hey, you're going to be with other people who are like you, who are worthy, unworthy, worthy, who are like you. They're going to love me. They're going to be with me. They're going to believe in me, and they're going to walk. They're going to behave a certain way because they believe a certain thing, just like you. So we cohabitate. So we become friends and brothers. We marry, and we have children, and we do all these things with people who believe. We experience their sorrow together. We correct each other. We do all these things together because the Spirit cohabitates in us, and then we cohabitate with one another. We live amongst one another. We call people that we would never be cool with, apart from the gospel, our friends and brothers. We eat and have meals with and share stories, and our children play with people that we would never probably talk to apart from the gospel. That's, the, that's part of the gift of salvation. You don't just get forgiveness you get a family. So it's forgiveness and family. That's beautiful. So when you hear all this, we have to understand that the manner in which we walk, the way that we walk, the way that we live is revealing of the relationship we believe we have with God. So how I live will reveal the kind of relationship I think I have with God. If I'm not confident in my relationship with God, if I think he doesn't love me or he's mean-spirited or he's this and he's that, then I'm going to relate to people that way. It's going to be a challenge for me. The way we live according to the way we think God relates to us. God is this taskmaster who's just up there, like, making check marks of every time we sin. We're going to be real legalistic, and we're going to be real self-righteous towards other people's sin. If we think God doesn't love us and is angry with us all the time, then we're not going to feel close to the Lord, and we're going to always talk in sort of morbid, introspective terms about our own identity. We're going to always remind ourselves and others of how much we fail and because that's what we think. I'm telling you, how we live is directly connected to how we think God relates to us. And if we don't deal with that vertical relationship, it's going to play itself out horizontally in negative ways. If we think God doesn't love us, it's going to be hard to want to obey him. If we think God is going to do all these things for us and bless us in all these ways, and we're going to be expecting things from God, and when we don't, we'll be constantly disappointed. You know, one of the things that has, one of the things that has not puzzled me, but has just been profound to me, is that in the theological framework that we live in, we have this thing called God's sovereignty. And this is where we think God is in control of all things. And then we think about God's providence, which God is directing his affairs through all of the different ways and, and things that people are, our personalities. And 
They're like, God is not, a, we're not deists, right? Where we just think that God created the world and just stands back and just watch it and sees what happens and just take notes. No, we think God is intimately involved in the affairs of this world. That's our theological framework. So when we say God is sovereign, we think God is in control. And man, I've seen more believers upset over the political spectrum and worried about what policies are going to happen with this person and that person and this person and that person, and we need to fight for these and this freedom and this and that, and how do we know that that's what God and his sovereignty wants? And if God is sovereign, then isn't he sovereign over who sits in the presidency, what policies they make? What, isn't he sovereign over those things? Why are we dividing and angry over things that we trust God's sovereignty for? How do people say that they trust God that when they die, even though they willfully sin, they're going to go to heaven? The scariest thing that you can trust God for is that when I die, even though I sin willfully, I'm going to go to heaven. And yet I am frustrated and angry and don't trust them over who's the president or what policies this person is going to pass. If God is truly sovereign, then we have to submit to it. It's puzzling to me. How is God sovereign over the fact that I'm going to heaven, but I don't trust him when I need a job? How is God sovereign? You see, that's all about how it relates to me. If I really believe God is sovereign, then I'm going to be like Job and accept both the good and the bad. Do we accept blessing from God and not curses? We accept it all. We accept it all. I accept the fact that as much as I'm trying to do what I can, if I get COVID, then I, I, God is sovereign. I don't want that. I accept the fact that I have a special needs son. I didn't pray for that. It's God's sovereignty. I'm learning to say, okay, God, you don't relate to me in a way just because I'm worthy, just because you have saved me. You don't relate to me in a way where you're going to coddle my life in such a way that any suffering that I experience is going to be minute at best. Then by your grace, I'll die in my sleep and then be in eternity with you. No. In the streets, we used to call, uh, we used to call it, man, we sucker free. <laughs> you know about that, huh? Cleveland know about that. We sucker free. That's what we say in the streets, man. We sucker free. This means there ain't no weaklings around here. Well, you know what? In America, Christians want to be suffer free. And it's just not reality. God relates to us through that. Not against it. So what should we do? We should live Live worthy of the calling that we received. Salvation and cohabitation. Freedom, forgiveness of sin, freedom from sin. The spirit in us, the church with us. That's what we should do. How should we do it? Verses two and three. <clears throat> with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. See here, this is how God says do it. With all humility, gentleness, 
pace with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. That's how. So he lists three things up front. These are all, these are, these are what it looked like, this is what it looks like to live worthy of the calling that we have received. And he says, first, humility. That's just a disposition. It's like a, it's a disposition of, of, and of it's assessing oneself appropriately, right? R- Romans 12, 3, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but rather with sober judgment, right? So it's, I recognize, hey, man, I got flaws, some serious flaws here, serious flaws. Me and Mike always talk about, man, how we're amazed that we're pastors and stuff, and that's, the, that's both the humor of the Lord and the grace of the Lord. Serious flaws. And I recognize that. I recognize that God does not need me to lead Solid Rock Church. And he has used me these past 12 years, and I'm grateful. But he doesn't need me. This church will be fine if I'm not here. God doesn't need me or any of us. No. Listen, humility, he says, man, we were praying this Friday morning. Friday morning prayer. We were just praying, man, Lord, thank you that you've given us the breath and the sound mind to formulate words, that my brain works in such a way that I can say coherent phrases that people can amen to. That's from the Lord. Like, we need to get down to that. We just be talking about all this stuff we don't have as if the breath that you're breathing is somehow on your own. Your ability to complain about what the Lord is not doing is his sustaining you. I mean, we need to get down to that. That's humility. The very breath you breathe that you're using to sit against the Lord, he's giving you the ability to breathe and allowing that to happen. Like, that's humility. Like, who are we? We're nothing. But in Christ, he says, you're something. Humility just says, listen, man, we need to say low. He says, be gentle. This is acting in a mild, sort of a, 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 a even-tempered, a meekness, a, a considerateness. Now, let me say this. Let me say something about this, because this isn't about personality here, right? Because some people have gentle personalities and they're not believers. That's not what he's talking about. All these things he's saying are in the Lord. Like, I'm doing these things because I have a relationship with the Lord, not because I'm an introvert. There's a difference. You know, I don't do things like, I mean, yes, our personalities shape us and they guide us. I get it. But like, I'm not, I don't do things because I'm an extrovert. I'm actually an extrovert introvert because there are moments where I like to be around people and there are moments where I ain't trying to talk to nobody. So I'm actually both. I'm not always trying to be around people, but then, I, but then there are times I just really want to be around people. But he's not talking about my personality, your personality. Why am you gentle by personality? No, you can do that because, and that can be beneficial to you. That can be selfish ambition. I'm gentle because this is just how people think I am. Remember the scripture, Proverbs, this is one of my favorite verses in Proverbs. Pro, I love this verse. There are verses, I'm like, Lord, I'm glad you put this in the word. He said, even a fool is thought wise if he keeps silent and discerning if he holds his tongue. So you could be a fool. And people just think, wow, they're really, they don't say nothing. They just really listen and take things in. It's you over there thinking everything, judging everybody, and you ain't said a word. Now, he's not, this isn't, these aren't attributes, humility, gentleness, patience. These aren't natural dispositions. These are, these are things that I pursue to live worthy of the calling that God has given me. Now, some of us, 
by our personalities, by our dispositions, may have to gentleness, patience. These come harder for someone like me than it would be for someone who's more soft-spoken. It doesn't mean that, so I'm not exempt from having to do them because my personality is, you know, big person. That doesn't mean that. Doesn't mean that. I'm still, I still have to do them, but it may come a different way for me than it would be for someone who has a natural disposition. You know, at my wedding, <laughs> this was a clearly at my wedding. So at my wedding, this is how I came out. I had 10 groomsmen, and which, which my wife didn't appreciate because then she had to have 10 bridesmaids. She didn't want that many. But she was like, no, you know what, babe, go ahead, let's do what we want to do. So I had 10 groomsmen in my wedding, and we came out like a basketball team. So we were backstage, and we had done the day before, everyone, we recorded everyone doing like a dribble move and like a jump shot. And so it showed on the screen each groomsman. And, it was, and, I, and the announcer was like, and next groomsman, he is the longtime friend of the, of the groom. He played this and that. Ladies and gentlemen, Eric Simmons. And then he would come out, come on stage, right? So this is what we do. The lights are flickering. This is 100%, right? So then after everyone goes out, all the groomsmen go out there. Then the music plays. Boom, 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 boom. And now, ladies and gentlemen, stand to your feet for the groom. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun. I'm getting goosebumps right now thinking about it. Dun, dun. And the doors open. And then once they come in, they say, ladies and gentlemen, the groom, Curtis Allen. And then I go, everyone's down. I go down like this, tap everybody low, like this. We go down, tap everybody, then we get in a circle. We all put our hands up and we're like, what time is it? Wedding time. <sighs> right? Crazy joint. Then the lights come back on. Then all of a sudden, cling, 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 cling. And here comes the first bridesmaid. And everybody busted out laughing. And they were like, that was Kurt. This is Betsy. My wife's natural disposition is to be quiet is to be meek. Mine is not. But we're still both responsible to do it because we want to honor the Lord, not because that's who I am in a personality. Man, I'm going to have to go watch my wedding video. Man, I want to see that joint again, even though I'm going to look like I was 12 years old. One thing about old wedding videos, you're like, golly, I've gained a whole two people. <laughs> I'm sorry, man. Cleveland making me laugh. All right, so Humility, gentleness, and patience. Just the, patience is, a, I love it. What's the King James? We're going back to the King James. Long-suffering. It's the endurance of pain or unhappiness. It's long-suffering. This is what it, these are, these are characteristics. Not that just your personality, but because you want to honor the Lord. So if it is part of your personality, now you're doing it because you want to honor the Lord. If it's not your personality, then we work at it. Because we want to honor the Lord. Now, these things are, these are postures, dispositions of the heart. And, and, and we have to have these things because the next two things, he gave us three things. The next two things that we're called to do take a little bit more effort. So in this same verse, we get humility, gentleness, and patience. Then he says this, bury with one another in love. Ooh. It's now we now we cooking, bearing with one another in love. This is this is language that is essentially getting at there's going to be conflict and challenge among you. Listen, God doesn't tell you to bear with people. Right. This means to bear with people means to endure. It says to put up with, 
to have patience with, to hang in there with these folks. Why? Because they're going to be different than you. Now, you know what this is pointing back to? I talked about the therefore. I said, we'll get, we'll come back to that. Let's go back to why he said therefore. What he said in chapter three is why he's saying, I urge you to live worthy of the calling and to bear with one another in love. The reason why he said that, because in chapter three, Paul goes back and he highlights this in verse six. This is what he says in chapter three, verse six. We're going to read the fuller treatment of it in a minute. But he says this. He explains this. The Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, are co-heirs, members of the same body, and partners in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now, I'm going to fill this out a little bit more in a couple minutes, but, but his point was the reason why you're going to have to bear one another in love because you all have been Jewish all the time and you got your own customs and rituals and traditions and history that you're used to, but now that you're in Christ, we're bringing in a whole bunch of people called, that are non-Jews that you used to historically not associate with. And now we're bringing those people in, and they're way different than y'all. They don't got none of those customs, none of that history, but they also are believers in Jesus. And he says they are members of the same body, partners, partners in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So he says, listen, y'all going to have to endure some unpleasant or difficult moments because different people are coming because we believe in Jesus. You want to love people that you do not like. You know, to love people you don't like. I don't have any affection for this person. Why do they do things that way? Man, they're so loud. Why do they dress like that? They're just so different. Like, why do they always try to be? All this stuff is all coming together in the church. And Paul says, that's, that's the Gentiles. At that point in time, that was a huge, big deal. It's huge. It would be like today. And this isn't the same thing because this is actually, this isn't true. But I just want to kind of shock you for a second. It would be like finding out that like the Muslims and the Christians are one and the same. It would just be crazy like that. Like what? There's no way. And I ain't saying no, I don't, don't run with that and say, oh, look, my pastor said we don't coexist around here. We Christ and Christ alone. But just the shock of knowing this group of people I'm now supposed to live with, we're totally different. These people are uncouth. They're barbarians. They don't have, they're uneducated. They stink. And he says, man, they're co-heirs. So what do you have to do? Bear with one another. You see, biblical love is not effortless friendship. It's sacrificial kinship. It's not, if there's friendships, there are friendships that I have that are effortless. We get together, we tap, we laugh, we have fun. It doesn't take real effort. Me and Mike have a wonderful working relationship. We can call each other at any moment and any time, and we can find something to laugh at and have fun together. And when we got to get serious and buckle down, we do that. But we have a wonderful relationship. I don't, you don't have the same relationship with everybody. There's people watching that have a certain relationship with certain people, and it's effortless, and that's fantastic. It's effortless. The effortless relationships are great. But, but that's not what biblical, that's what it means to be biblical. Biblical relationships are sacrificial kinship. Like we're family, we're connected now, but it's going to be sacrificial. Because in all honesty, I don't like you. I don't like your personality. I don't like what you, I got to get used to you. And if you're thinking of people right now, I would, I would remind you, grab your, your little vanity mirror and hold that joint up. And be like, yep. Yeah. 
That person that you're looking at is also difficult. They're unlikable at times. Ask people who really love you to tell you the truth. Biblical love is sacrificial. So we bear with one another. We, we put up with, we hang in there with. Because they're going to be different than us. They're going to be different. This is why biblical love can't hinge on how I feel about people. This is why the scripture says bear with one another. Because it's not going to be based on my emotional capacity to love people, but by my, my capacity to remember that I'm loved by God. And so that's what I can do. I can bear with this person. They can bear with me. It can't be based on how I feel. Look, the father knows exactly what he's asking of us. But you know what he also knows? Only those that truly belong to him are going to strive to do it. Now, I know that this year Thanksgiving is a little different because of COVID. People might not be getting with families as usual. It won't be the same travel and stuff like that. People are thinking through what plans they have. But usually around the holidays, often many of us are faced with relationships with family members that we don't really enjoy. We have to bear with, put up with. And God is saying, you got you to so love those people. Like he knows what he's asking us to do. And he knows that only those who believe in him will strive to do it. What are the relationships that we have? Who are the Gentiles in your life? Who are the Christians in your life that you are just tempted by for various reasons? Maybe they're your children. They're just, they're just hard-headed. When I was little, my mom used to say, a hard head makes for a soft butt. Who are, the, who are those people? Who are the people that, who are the Gentiles in your life? Maybe it's your spouse. It's, Maybe it's coworkers. Maybe it's media, people on social media. You see people post something, you like, man, this person just, ugh. Sometimes we act like we have to interact with people on social media. Like, get on social media if you bother by it. If people really bother you, just unfollow them. What is this rule, like, if you unfollow someone and unfriend them, like, somehow, man, unfriend them, unfollow them. If you need to live, if you need to live, only be around people that you cool with to do that. Who are these people? Maybe it's politicians. Maybe it's the left. Oh, I just can't. Kamala Harris is this, and she's so liberal, and she's that, and she's this. And maybe it's Trump, and this dude is still, he's a lot. Man, he's, get out of the office. Who is it? Who are the Gentiles in your life? Now, in the context of Gentiles, are fellow believers. I'm stretching that out to be like just people that you just don't, because God says we have to love our neighbors as well. Who are the people that just get under your skin who are different than you? Now, when they're believers, we bear with them in love. I think this extends to non-believers, but practically this is talking to believers. And then the next phrase he says that also requires effort is this. Make every effort, verse 3, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. Make every effort. It's about being eager to do this. It's about being eager. This is the one thing that I think can be a challenge in the culture that we're in right now because we're not really around people. Everything's through a television or a TV or a computer screen. 
so we don't need to make every effort because we're just not even around people. Except the, our echo chambers, our close friends we talk to in occasional meetings that we log in on and we do that and that's it. We're not around people. We're not really sacrificing to hang with people. We're not driving nowhere. We're not having to clean our houses up because the people are coming over. We're not having to deal with all the kind of things that we normally deal with when we meet together. But there's still an eagerness. This is, a, this is an active, not a passive thing. We don't, you don't make every effort by chilling and watching things play out. It's about being active. When, there's, when you feel like there's some tension in your D group, be active. Hey, is everyone okay? Everyone doing okay? I, I, I could be wrong, but it just feels like there's some tension. Is everyone okay? It's being active to make every effort to, to show in, in keen interest, intense desire, you know, to be zealous. Like, I just want to make sure that we're, hey, that we're together. We, I want to watch over. I want to guard this thing that we have, this bond, this, this connection based on common interest in Jesus Christ. This is how God says, this is how we do it. Every once in a while, I think it's good to ask the question, am I really making every effort? Am I making every effort? Many of us will say no. Then we should say, well, why not? Well, what's stopping me? I bet you a lot of us will say, well, because it's not being reciprocated. People aren't doing the same thing. And what's interesting is he never says make every effort and people will do the same. He's telling us each individually make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit. He doesn't say that people are going to respond to that. In fact, in Romans 12, 18, another one of my favorite passages, he says, look, so long as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. As long as it depends on you. Man, you just people would just say and say whatever they're going to say. You will have people that have been in your life and you've been there for them and then you, they get offended at you and then it just become, all of a sudden, you become all this stuff. And it's like, okay, I'm not, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to say this, this about them or be at war with them. It's like, you know, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. That's all you can do. You got relatives you're going to see and it's just like, ah. It's just like, all right, I'm so, what can I do? How can I make every effort? But it doesn't mean people are going to do the same. The call to make every effort will not always be reciprocated. That means people are not going to do the same thing you're doing, even in your own household. But we do it because that's what it means to live in a manner worthy of the calling that we've received, even if other believers in our household aren't doing it. We're going to give an account before God individually how did you do? I know, but they made it. Yeah, how did you do? I mean, I could have done a little bit better, but because they, how did you do? Why did you say this? Because they said, that, you said this out of the overflow of your heart, your action spoke. Why wasn't I enough to resist that temptation? Why was the only reason why you would obey me is if I made it easy for you? Those are the type of questions I think I might hear. It's like, oh, man. And what are you going to say to that? Well, because I anticipate hearing those questions now, I'm trying to start now. Because I think God's going to be like, what? So I was, 
I was supposed to make it easy. So the way you would obey me and love your neighbor and your brother is that if I just made them lovable? I don't think so. So the only way you would make every effort is if you felt like they weren't going to walk all over you. But I let Jesus, I let human beings. Do you remember in Isaiah 66 when the Lord said, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool? I let people who were in my footstool kill my son so that you could have salvation and live differently. And you didn't because you didn't want people to run over top of you or because it was too hard because they got on your nerves. When people get on my nerves, remember that nails went in his nerves. That's what we need to remember. When it's hard to love people because they get on our nerves, we need to remember that he allowed nails to go into his nerves. I'm just talking to myself. Are we really making every effort? We should, and it should be motivated by how God feels about us. Lastly, so we got how do we do it? Verses 3, 2, and 3. How do we do it? With humility, with patience, with gentleness, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the bond of the Spirit. And why should we do it? Lastly, very brief. He says, there is one, I love this verse, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope at your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and all. You know what he's doing? He's giving us a brief description of our connection to the Trinity. And here's the point. Oneness is the point here. God is three in essence, three in person, one in essence. And this oneness, it overlaps. The oneness of God overlaps in the oneness in God's people. This is amazing. He says there's one body, the church, one spirit, the Holy Spirit. This is you recall the one hope in Jesus Christ. One Lord, Jesus. One faith, faith in him. One baptism because of Jesus Christ. One God and Father of all. He's reminding us that this is a Trinitarian responsibility. We are imitating the Trinity in the way that they interact with one another. There's, there's unity in diversity. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. And the Spirit is not the Father. There, there's, there's unity, but there's diversity among the, the Godhead. And so in the church, to imitate them, there's going to be unity, but diversity. And this carries over from chapter 3. When he says this in chapter 3, verses 3 through 6, he says, the mystery was made known to me by revelation. As I have briefly written above, by reading this, you are able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. This was not made known to people in other generations as it is now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. In other words, he's saying, look, listen, this is a mystery that God just revealed to us. He just revealed it. And what's the mystery? What we read earlier, the Gentiles are co-heirs. Members of the same body and partners in the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. Those people who are different, we're now unified with because they believe in Jesus. So we have to bear with one another in love. Why? Because it's going to be diversity. It's going to be diversity. The church was the first diversity training center in human history. That's what the church, the church 
was the first diversity training facility. As you brought in, you had people who were Pharisees and Sadducees standing beside cult temple prostitutes, now all believing in Jesus and having to take up their crosses and fight against the very old lifestyle they had. But now we got to do it together. I can't imagine. I bet you there were times where a Pharisee who would have never touched a Gentile married a Gentile prostitute who's now a faithful believer in Jesus Christ and they raised families. Oh, man, it's crazy. In imitation of God, we are going to be unified while diverse. Oneness is at play. One another. You know, one of the reasons why I think there's so much division and lovelessness in the church is because deep down inside, we want unity to mean people are more like us. Even more than like Christ. We want our children to be like us. Our spouses to be like us. Our co-workers to be like us. Our politicians. We want people to be like us. We don't say that. We'll never say that. But think about what next time, just, just really ask yourself, next time you get into something with somebody and you, you don't like what they, what do they actually do? They didn't do something the way you would do it. They don't think about it the way you would think about it. You're selfish because you did this and they wouldn't do it. It's subtly, people need to be like us. And you see this pervasive in the world. There's a spirit of rightness in the world. This is what's happening. This is what social media is. The spirit of rightness. I post something, I think you're wrong and I'm right. Let me post back and tell you why. There are times I have to just be like, fam, you know, I post it because that's how I feel. I don't care if you think differently than me. That's fine. Last I heard, it was still a free country. Maybe that's changing, but they used to say that. People act like, oh, I just, I'm, I'm right. I disagree with you. There's a spirit of rightness, and everybody's right. They just go back and forth, and it's just like, I had to tell you the other day, hey, fam, you realize you follow me on Twitter, right? Like, I don't follow you. You follow me. So if you don't like what I just tweeted, then I even told one dude that, you know what, Paula Abdul has this song called Hush Hush, real popular song, Rush Rush, that real popular song of the 90s. I said, if you replace the R's with H's, that's exactly what you should do. Hush Hush. Like, who cares? Social media, who cares? Why are we going back and forth? I don't care if you think you're right. It's fine. That's the spirit of the age is rightness. But it can't be the spirit of the age in the church because only Jesus is right. And the way to be right is to live and walk in a manner worthy of the calling that we receive, making every effort to love one another. That's what we got. That's what it means to, to do. This is why we focused on love because it's a forgotten, it's a presumed, it's a presumed responsibility. We wanted to make sure it wasn't presumed anymore. It's been a good run. I've appreciated this series and appreciated the comments that you've shared with me. Remember, when people get on your nerves, remember that Jesus let nails go in his nerves so that you and I could experience the grace that we don't, don't deserve but that we have received. Father, you, again, we pray as we process all that we've heard and that we wrestle with the responsibility. We know we're going to fail at times, Lord. This isn't about perfection. It's about direction. It's about responsibility. 
I pray that you would help each of us to, to live in a manner worthy that we have received and that we, are, we make every effort. Lord, this isn't about people being like us. It's about us being like you. So I pray, Lord, that you would help us to accomplish your purpose. Lord, may this Thanksgiving, despite its challenges, Lord, I pray that next Sunday that there would be people who are here and people who type in and show the gratitude for you in the midst of a pandemic. Like there's no, there's no grace supersedes a pandemic. And there are many things that you've done for us. I pray that there would be some who come next week and are willing to share and some who type, who send in. And we're just able to read just gratitude for you, Lord. Because you're definitely worthy of every song we could ever sing. For your glory and our good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, everyone, just remember that if you'd like to ask a question about this message or any of the messages that have been part of this series, you should go ahead and text to 240 623 8076. Pastor Kirby, we have a question uh, where the person asks, um, and this is not really related to this uh, message, I don't mm -hmm. think, but um, they ask, what does it mean that God chose us before the foundation of the world? So what it means is that God, without knowing all things, right? So God knows everything. Before the world was even created, God had chosen people to believe in him. He had chosen people to give to his son, Jesus Christ, that would become eternal family. And this is not, this is Ephesians 1 and chapter 2. You read those chapters and they'll really help you understand. There's plenty more, but just, just start there. And this is where God is before the foundation, before the world was created, God had chosen people that he would create that would believe in him and experience his eternal mercy. And that's what it means to, that's what that that phrase means before the found before the world was created, even before all this started. This is this, these are scriptural. This is scriptural language. So this isn't me just trying to create a, a wonderful imagination. This is God saying, before the foundation of the world, before I actually created the planet, there were things that had already been established by Him. They just have to play themselves out, but He'd already created them, and and before He created them, they became established. That's what it means. Basically before, almost like before time as we know it began. That's what it means. All right, great. Thank you. Um, the next question um, uh, starts by saying uh, that the person loves the question, am I really making every effort? Uh, but then they ask, um, what if we believe that the answer for us is no? Um, because um, I struggle with depression and I don't mm -hmm. feel like um, I have the emotional or mental energy mm -hmm. to make every effort. Mm -hmm. Wonderful question. Wonderful. You know, the thing with like depression and like, you know, bipolar disorder or those kinds of things, 
I think our tendency is, this is why, you know, I read a book recently that said from 2010 to 2019, or maybe it's an article, actually I read a lot, it was probably both. It said that the, the number of antidepressant drugs has quadrupled. And yet the, the number of people that experience depression has be, gone beyond that number. And this point was that if these antidepressant drugs really work, then why are more people experiencing anxiety and depression than ever before in, in recorded American history, at least? Now, why am I saying I'm saying that to say this. A lot of times when we struggle with things like depression, we tend to think, I need to get out of this depression to do anything. I think the question you have to ask, whether it's depression or anxiety, those things make it difficult to honor the Lord, but they don't make it impossible to. So I think you have to ask this, how do I honor the Lord while I'm depressed? You got, like, look, at, look read Psalm 88. Read Psalm 73. There are Psalms where people are experiencing David and whoever, and God put those in his word. Read Lamentations, experiencing significant duress, emotional duress. And they're finding out, how do I honor the Lord as, a, as someone who is depressed? How do I glorify God as someone who is anxious? What does that look like? There's still things that we can do. So I, I, I'd have to know more specifics of, for you to know what are some ways you can. But I think start with, hey, it's possible to glorify God even though I'm depressed. Now, what does that look like? How do I, how do, how do, I do that? What, what, what thoughts do I need to really look at? What, what, what of God's word do I need to have and focus on to help me honor the Lord and try to make every effort? And it may look different. Every effort for you may look different than it would be for someone who doesn't struggle with depression. And the beautiful thing about it is the Lord knows. Like, he knows what your weaknesses are. He's created you. Psalm 103, 10 through 12. For he remembers how we are formed, that we are only dust. You know, he, he knows who you are. He knows what you're capable of. And what he's pleased with is that you still desire to honor him, even though you experience depression or anxiety or some, uh, you know, a personality disorder. So that's where I would start. I mean, it's, you know, again, without knowing certain things, I, it's hard to be, have specifics, but I, I would start there. I would start with that idea that, hey, listen, it might not be the Lord's will that the depression lift or the anxiety go away, but it is the Lord's will that I glorify him even in the midst of it. And, and look, at, look at Luke uh, chapter 10. That's what he said to Martha, right? Mary and Martha. That's what he says to Martha. Mary's sitting at his feet, and Martha's doing the dishes and getting everything together, and she's all getting frustrated. And what does she say? Lord, don't you care that I'm doing all this stuff? And he says to her, he says, Martha, Martha, you are anxious about many things. He says, Mary is doing what is right. I'm not going to take that from her. So again, we have to just, okay, even in that anxiety, what, what could, you know what, Martha just needed to just sit down at Jesus' feet. Just chill for a minute. That food, Jesus could turn, he could, he could feed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. He can, he can make that meal for you if he wanted to. Like, just, just relax. And he'll, he'll make a better meal than Martha anyway. So that's what I would do. I'd start with that. Thank you. Um, this next question, a person is asking um, how to discern um, 
between uh, the loving action uh, along with appropriate boundaries. So they ask, how do I discern what the loving action uh, to do is, and um, isn't it appropriate to have boundaries? Sure. I mean, yeah, of course. I, you know, again, I, the problem is I don't know what the boundaries are for. So we can create boundaries selfishly, too, because it's easier to not be around people than it is to deal with them. So I'm not saying that you shouldn't have boundaries. I just don't know what the boundaries are for. There's many levels to boundaries. I think we're, I think, I think, the t so here's the thing. Here's what, here's what I would ask you to start with. What are the boundaries that the Bible says you should have? Okay, like, what are, who are the people the Bible says you shouldn't be around, right? So look at like 1 Corinthians 5. What's the list of people that God says you shouldn't be around? Look at uh, uh, Hebrews 13. What are, the, what, are the, what are the lists of people that you shouldn't be around? Those are clearly boundaries that God wants you to put up. So start there and then figure out, does this person or these people fit within the realm of those? When he says, like, don't even associate, don't even eat with such a person, who are those kinds of people? He has, the Bible does definitely have boundaries for us. All I would say is because I don't know your situation, we have to be careful because we can make boundaries based on just I don't feel like dealing with it, then, then maybe. And they can, we can make boundaries also in I want to control my suffering. I want to control. I want to be sovereign over how I suffer and when I suffer. And I'm not saying that's you. I'm just saying I don't know enough. To, so I agree that there are boundaries. I think the Bible gives us boundaries. But I want to at least see, oh, do these people fit in those boundaries? Or is it just, are they exhausting to me? And that doesn't mean you shouldn't be around them, but you have to think about, well, what does it mean to, to make every effort? Or what is loving people that you don't like? I mean, that's what we, that was another, we meant to do that message and then we just didn't do it. We're loving people that you don't like. Maybe we'll talk about that at the next uh, one another meeting. How do you love people that you don't like? And then you all can talk about, a bunch, we can talk about a bunch of that stuff. So yeah, boundaries exist. I think, you know, again, I'm, I'm hesitant to say, yeah, you should have boundaries. I don't know what that looks like because I don't know the circumstances of the boundaries. But there are ones that exist. I think I would start biblically first and work your way to, you know, personally. Where does that fit for you? All right. Um, let's see. Uh, and going a little further uh, into verse 7 in chapter 4, can that uh, verse 7 have any relation to the 30, 60, and a hundredfold fruit in the parable of the sower. The person is asking because um, they struggle with the lack of or levels of love they sometimes see within the church. So basically saying, is the 30, 60, hundredfold, hold me, I just have to look at verse 7. I don't have it in front of me because I didn't teach that. So let me just pull up verse. I know what it says, but I want to read it as it is. All right, so Ephesians 4, 7. All right. Now the grace was given to each one of you according to the measure of Christ's gift. That's what they're talking about. So the grace given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Um, sure, now grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So if you're talking about diversity and, yeah, I think, I think when Jesus said 30, 60, 100-fold, 
he definitely meant there's going to be levels. Going to be, not everyone's going to attain the same level of maturity. But the point was is that fruit is still fruit, even if it's not the same. Like, everyone won't bear the same fruit. So I, I think that can extend to that. I think there will be people in the church who... There's always going to be, first of all, there's always going to be Christians and non-Christians who profess to be the church, right? That's just, that's just, that's in the Bible. That's just, you know, the wheat and the tares is what they, what they call it sometimes. So that, that exists. And then there are going to be peoples of varying levels of maturity, which is why I think verses like 1 Thessalonians 5.14 are in play. Like, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. That's first. That's what he's saying. You got to admonish. Sometimes you got to correct people who are not doing what they're supposed to do. It says admonish. Admonish is not like, hey, buddy. Admonish is firm correction, like rebuke, like, you know, it's that. You know, encourage the faint heart. They're gonna be people that are faint-hearted. They just are not. They're not. They're not where they want to be. They're struggling. They feel. And then it says help the weak, people who just don't understand how to fight, how to do things. But then it says be patient with them all. So, yeah, I think there is going to always be a discrepancy in the church. I think even 30, 60, 100 fold to me are idle, faint-hearted, and weak. There are going to be categories of people, but we have to be patient with them all. But that could, I think, I think you could say that that could explain some of the varying levels of maturity in the church. Yeah, I, I, I'd say that. Well, we have um, one more question from that same person. Mm -hmm. And that question is... Um, can we see the wedding tape? I don't know. I got to see it first. <laughs> got to see. One sec. Yeah, maybe. Maybe we'll show it. It's, I'm telling you. Top 10 best wedding tape in the history of, of humanity. That joint, we went in. That joint was tough. Definitely you could see that. Next one another. <laughs> Next one another. That's right. They were like, oh my gosh, Kurt looks like a credit card with, with eyes and teeth. <laughs> That's what happens. <laughs> 